0: Hello, everyone. It's July 21st, 2020. This week, we're talking about shooting star, not the kind you wish upon, but the kind that transports cargo in space. Then we talked to Catherine Crowe about systems integration. It's a term we hear all the time, but what does it really mean? Well, we're going to find out. And lift off. And we've created the tower. Welcome to episode 269 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So
1: I, I have a link here in the show notes up at the top. Mm. Um, we talked about the solar orbiters um it was it just the perihelion or do they actually call it a science orbit
2: actually it's even better i think on one of their uh releases uh, some official documentation they were calling it perihelium huh. at least like uh, a single
0: three, like all throughout it i thought that was a pun because it's perihelion for singular right so
1: i think perihelion is the measurement and so a perihelium would be just one of those perihelia it, like i've never heard
2: location not a measurement yeah
1: i've <laughs> i've uh never heard it used in that way but it kind of makes sense just like with the language um but anyway so we were we uh talked about this uh perihelia last week and we've got photos back and you know they're the closest photos to the sun that have ever been taken dennis did you did you already see these photos
2: i did um And it's cool because now there's going to be a new science term for solar astronomy. from this.
1: Yeah, so what's a campfire?
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows, but it looks like they're (laughs) like like, micro flares. Like they're just very small scale, high, you know, I don't know. They're just bright little bits on the surface that look like they might be, uh, you know, I guess they call them campfires because if you look down on a campfire, you know, with the kind of fire and smoke billowing straight up at you, these seem to be kind of tall very localized phenomena so
0: so i was wondering the same thing um or i I mean i didn't know if this was an old term that just you know wasn't very common but so this is a new thing campfires on the sun Mm -hmm. like this is a new term that somebody coined but i guess it does have a very specific scientific meaning uh but we're just not sure about what that is
2: yeah i mean don't get me wrong there's probably you know Dozens of terms in heliophysics that I've never heard, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure they said that, yeah, okay, so so the, the, the telescope, the kind of, I guess, core telescope on the uh, solar orbiter is the extreme ultraviolet imager, uh, EUI, mm-hmm. and yeah, they say that, it, you know, having such high-res imaging of the sun, you've, they've showed details never before seen, such as campfires, as they've been called, and mm-hmm. so... They're just really, really, yeah, I guess it's just when you zoom in, you got higher spatial resolution now, and so you're able to see these phenomena that have always kind of been below the resolution uh, that you could detect anything like uh-huh. that before. They are some pretty pictures, though. I've been thinking about taking like, taking one of these ones where they just show in, uh, where, where you see um, all the convection cells, right? It's got that kind of very spotted surface just going throughout the whole frame. That would probably make a pretty... Good or pretty awful uh, desktop picture <laughs> <of> wallpaper.
1: <laughs> That's enough banter. We got a long show today.
0: <laughs> Dream Chaser has a trunk, but they've like named theirs like so it's like special like like you know unlike most spacecraft trunks. So this is called Shooting Star, and apparently it it has more than one use. There's a couple of. I guess, like generated images that show Dream Chaser detaching from its upper stage, which I believe is a centaur. The upper stage makes it look as though it attaches directly to the upper stage, but Dream Chaser does not do that, right? Because it too, just like any other, you know, like a dragon spacecraft, it has a trunk, right? So I'm a bit confused just right off the bat how it mounts onto the second stage, or if maybe the upper stage of the rocket has a little bit of room in there for that like it's got it's got an adapter between
1: so those are just earlier renderings and they added that adapter the only reason it needs the trunk is for the solar panels but even if even if you were to well for for the solar panels but also for the abort capability Mm -hmm. um but if you were to fly it without those solar panels it would just have a shorter on-orbit life that's not to say that it wouldn't be able to dock with ISS they're just buying themselves some wiggle room in case you know they they have to take longer to get there but you could totally get to ISS on batteries that's that's not crazy
0: yeah I mean that's kind of what I didn't know that was the part that you know I I don't know exactly what you can and cannot do so you can just use batteries and get to station um and you know presumably deorbit come back and all that good stuff uh you just uh could be up there for too long well plus you would have to you know you would have like you would have limited propellant um well i mean like you always do but you would have less of it since i believe a lot of that's in the trunk isn't it in
1: in crew dragon no that's not the case
0: okay so crew dragon the module doesn't have any capability of okay i thought it had some it does there's just no rcs thrusters on that trunk
1: nope it's it is it's just a shell with uh with some power and mounting points for uh for unpressurized cargo,
0: and there's no fuel exchange, right? Like there's nothing. It doesn't get fuel from that module at all. Because even then, that seems like a, they kind of missed a trick. If if that's the case, I mean, I mean, if you need it, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, propulsion systems are mm. already super complex. By adding that additional complexity, there are costs, right? <laughs> it's it, it's not just a, a free. Uh, a free Jerry can. You, you do have a lot of additional issues with that. So, and, and, you know, keep in mind, like they're already having to reach around the heat shield, um, just to have the, mm-hmm. the power and data hookups. Um, it, it's, you know, it's definitely not that simple. And then, um, Boeing Starliner. Does Starliner have any solar panels? I don't believe it does. So, I mean, that's that's another good example of you know you you don't really need that that capability. Um, you you can just fly on batteries.
2: Oh, I found I think I found them. They're at the yeah they're at the base of the kind of service module at the at the very bottom of the spacecraft
1: oh i see they're they're not deployable right they're on the bottom surface the abort engines stick out around them okay there you go that makes mm-hmm. sense yep. all right good that That's was that was really confusing me i was like Mm-hmm. It seems odd that they would make such a different
0: choice. The Starliner service module um it does have, you know, the solar panels like just like you said, but it also does have some uh small reaction control thrusters as well yeah. and radiators and all that. So Yeah, but, it it uh, is
1: a service module, yeah. not a trunk. It doesn't have any um okay. unpressurized cargo capability as far as I know.
2: Yeah, and I didn't realize but you asked about this. I went looking, and I, I didn't realize that the trunk on uh, Crew Dragon also provides aerodynamic stability during
0: aborts. Yeah, during aborts, it'll keep it from tumbling. Makes sense. Yeah.
1: And the, uh, the pad abort test was a really good indication of that when they detached the trunk. Uh, the vehicle was stable for a second and then flipped around really violently when it lost, uh, when it lost the trunk. So anyway, um, so Dream Chaser, um, could fly without solar panels, but from what I remember, they were talking about putting solar panels on the top surface of the body and, uh, and being able to fly it solo like that. But the renders that you're seeing, um, where there's that fancy adapter, because because now it's planned to fly inside of a fairing, um, but originally it was it was going to fly exposed with a fancy adapter, like an aerodynamic adapter. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those are, as far as I know, only from earlier earlier renders. I don't think that they're still mm-hmm. producing renders that look like that anymore.
2: Yeah, those ones they tend to be. Sit- it, this Dream Chaser tends to be sitting on top of an Atlas V too, and so like you can kind of they never show it. Not in a Vulcan centaur steering. Yeah. There
1: you go. So, uh, right. Dream chaser has this, it's probably better to call it a service module than a trunk. Um, because it actually allow, it's got pressurized area that allows the crew to actually go through, uh, the trunk or go through the service module. And, uh, Like David was talking about, there is actually uh, fuel stored on Dream Chaser's uh, service module. And that was one of the reasons that Dream Chaser was not accepted for uh, or or not selected for um, commercial crew was because you had to have astronauts traveling through this small tunnel to Mm -hmm. get into the ISS, which Mm -hmm. puts them in close proximity to both loud equipment, but also uh, fuel lines. Um, That was one of the things that that NASA didn't like. But anyway, all this to say, the the service module now has a name and it's called Shooting Star. And they are working on using it for more than just service to uh, a dream chaser uh, running as a commercial cargo vehicle. And That's really cool and a fun little corner of their architecture system to exploit. So the Shooting Star, they say that they've developed a free-flying version of Shooting Star um, that can act as a satellite to carry large payloads, um, and the free-flying version will have a higher power capacity. Not only that, but Shooting Star is also capable of docking or berthing with ISS, depending on uh, what NASA wants from it. And if they mount it on top of a, uh, of a upper stage that has some more power, they also believe that they can service, uh, the lunar orbit gateway. And all of this is bonus because it will actually be the same thing flying attached to dream chaser doing its primary mission. Um, and that's, like, so cool. I think this is a really neat idea.
2: Yeah, I like their design choice to just basically go versatile, 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 you know?
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, versatile really is the right word here because not only can it fly on its own, not only can it fly docked to, or, you know, uh, connected to Dream Chaser, but after a normal Dream Chaser mission, it can also uh, detach and stay in orbit on its own and do its own deorbit burn later, which allows it to do carry-on experiments just like Cygnus does. Except Cygnus doesn't have any downmass capability, whereas the Dream Chaser Shooting Star system will be able to do both. It leaves half of the spacecraft in orbit, and half of it comes back down to Earth, <laughs> and that's that's really
0: darn cool. I wonder if there's something about Dream Chaser that makes this particular type of a module possible you know like because it does seem like more of an independent spacecraft than other modules for other spacecraft so why this one like I mean is this something that they intended from you know the outset or did it just kind of you know is it just a happy coincidence that you can also use it for other stuff
1: yeah I think there are a couple of things that lead into that first they developed a, a, a service module and not a trunk um, and so a service module is already its own spacecraft right it can do like a starliner the service module actually does its own avoidance maneuver after separation. And so it has, you know, some limited uh, maneuvering capability on its own. So that's that's one thing that enables it. I think another thing that uh, played into this decision was the fact that they are deviating from their initial design, right? They They initially wanted to fly crew and now they can't. And so As they are repurposing this vehicle to try to make money off of it, they're also looking for other things that they can do with it, right? And it's kind of a, an opportunity and a motivation for innovation, I guess. So it's, I I think it's a lot of different things are going into this actually um turning out and then you know of course it's also worth pointing out that uh the free flying variant is a variant it's a kind of using as much of the same material as you can but it has some changes on board oh and then the the other thing i thought of that uh, enables this is the fact that it's a service module so it has fuel on board and so that is kind of a key part of getting it to the point where it can be its own its own vehicle, at least on Mm. paper, you know, at least uh, convincing the business folks that it's a good idea. And
2: what do you think uh, about just physically, the fact that its docking port is at the rear and that it plans to fly in a fairing means you can, you know, just go and add something to it if you wanted to, as opposed to like, you couldn't really plop something on the top of Dragon or Crew Dragon or um, Starliner, right? I mean, that just, those, those aren't in a fairing and you couldn't just have this. Bulbous satellite sitting on top. I don't think. <laughs> <You>
1: don't. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent point as well. So I think that's a good time to talk about um, its capabilities it can carry 7600 pounds of pressurized cargo and 3300 pounds of unpressurized cargo so this is you know this is its own a spacecraft in its own right like this is uh this is a hefty little guy it's it's an interesting intersection of all these different design choices
2: i was just thinking about how cool crew dragon looked and still looks currently you know Docked to the space station. Can you imagine Dream Chaser with Shooting Star yeah. docked <laughs> during a spacewalk, seeing it from the outside?
1: I think I think seeing it from a spacewalk is kind of the end all and be all of <laughs> seeing spacecraft.
0: <laughs> so wait a minute. So I, I I just thought something. So yeah, if Dream Chaser docks with Shooting Star, so if it docks with Shooting Star, it can't be crewed because obviously they're not doing crew missions, you know. But if that's the case and they have cargo inside. The Dream Chaser, wouldn't they still have to go through, you know, go past those lines of fuel that NASA yes. doesn't want them to do in ah, order to get stuff? So so why? No clue. So I don't understand.
1: I, I don't know what the negotiations behind the curtains are, but apparently they're more okay with it now.
2: Maybe they stick like a broom or something <laughs> and try to push the cargo out. from.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I expect that there that there were some pretty drastic redesigns that had to happen that couldn't happen in the time frame of commercial crew and you know so there there's a possibility that in the future they could return to um to crewed flights who knows Mm -hmm. i i think that snc definitely hopes that that's the case
0: yeah Yeah, i mean it doesn't seem like a big deal to me to be honest but i mean like you know what do i know but there's you know fuel everywhere Mm -hmm. on a spacecraft i mean what's the difference in being like oh you're Three feet from it, or you're 20 feet from it, it's still going to be dangerous if it leaks, or God knows if it explodes or something. Like it doesn't matter exactly where you are. When, well, consider I don't understand what the c-
1: consider a leak that happens during docking of a crew dream chaser. What do you do to get out of the vehicle? You have to go straight through that mm-hmm. leak. Whereas if a mm-hmm. leak happens on a crew dragon, what do you do to get away from the leak? You go away from it, and you're headed towards safety. So I think that might be part of the the thought process, but again, you know, we don't know. We're we're totally speculating from the outside here and trying to guess what the case is based on the news that we hear.
0: It might just be that it's an interface that is like the danger part, not necessarily that there's fuel there. Or, I mean, yes, that there's fuel there, but the fact that you know the module detaches and so there's some kind of a link there. You know what I mean? So that's probably what like worries them. Well, no, because the fuel because there are no fuel lines that run between the two, right? Because the fuel is not for shooting stars, just for shooting star.
1: But well, certainly but. the extra, um, the extra interface as far as the pressurized environment goes, yeah, there's an additional interface there, um, which might have factored in. But they, I don't think I ever saw it stated. But I'm sure that was something that was mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah. Well, I think we've speculated as much as we can on mm-hmm. shooting star, but like. I, I'm assuming you guys are on board with me as being huge shooting star fans, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, it also just kind of looks cool. I don't know why I like the look of it, but it mm. looks like a neat little spacecraft.
1: Yeah, being conical like that. Mm. Conical without being an atmosphere reentry shape. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool.
0: just the normal three shorts and sweets. So what's up first one, Dennis?
2: First up, Haibusa 2 now has a sample return date. JAXA's Haibusa 2 mission, having collected samples from Asteroid Ryugu's surface in 2019, has been on its return journey to Earth since last November. Officials have now confirmed the return date of the probe and sample capsule, December 6th of this year. The capsule will aim for landing in Woomera, South Australia. Although the amount collected from the surface and subsurface samplings won't be known until inspection on Earth, the near-perfect performance of the sampling system has mission. Scientists confident that they have collected the intended 100 milligrams of asteroid material.
0: Next up, Florida's Mark II Starship is being scrapped. So, didn't know, I don't know about this, but um, so after being mostly completed in late 2019, Starship Mark II is being disassembled at Cocoa Beach, Florida. And as the Mark II was assembled miles from an actual test facility, the cost of logistics of transport were deemed too high. The Mark II's primary role was to serve as a welding pathfinder, and techniques learned from it have helped later versions of Starship in Boca Chica. At this point several of the vehicle's rings and the dome have been removed with the rest soon to follow in the coming days and so that'll be it for mark two alas which i forgot about actually i didn't even know <laughs> about it <laughs> so i guess that's just as well
1: and finally crew dragon is planned to return in early august bob Benkin and doug curley who flew to the iss aboard crew dragon's demo 2 flight on may 30th now have a planned date to return to earth nasa administrator jim Bridenstine tweeted that barring weather conditions at the splashdown site the spacecraft will undock on august 1st with a water landing on august 2nd several potential splashdown locations have been identified in both the atlantic ocean and the gulf of mexico this will bring an end to demo 2 which was originally expected to last no more than a couple weeks and instead has resulted in a longer stay with multiple spacewalks by Benkin.
0: So this week we have this Catherine Crow, and she is let me get this title right: the NASA Human Landing System Deputy Lead for Integrated Performance. Okay, so that's a nice long NASA title. So welcome to the show. Go ahead and tell us what that means because I kind of get lost in all those words. <laughs> and I'm not sure.
3: Don't worry, I do too. There's like a whole paragraph. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so basically, what that means is uh, I'm in the I'm on in the Systems Engineering and Integration team within the HLS Program Office. And so what we're responsible for is the the general mission planning and analysis at this point. You know, the roles will change a little bit as we get closer to the mission itself. Um, But for right now, if it's uh, top level mission analysis and planning, that's our our main area of focus. So that covers things like trajectories and uh, both natural and induced environments, as well as some more systems engineering uh, type functions like functional analysis and uh, you know technical performance measures and all those fun things. So it's a it's a pretty broad scope, but we're mostly focused on the the top level set of analytical products.
1: I mean that that's actually a pretty good description of what integration is as a as a work category, I guess. Could, could you tell us a difference? Is there a difference between systems engineering and integration engineering, or are they just synonyms?
3: So this could turn into a whole nomenclature debate, because I think it depends on <laughs> yep. which uh, systems engineer you talk to. Not that, you know, engineers ah. like to have long debates about nomenclature or anything. But and so <laughs> I'll give you my my personal perspective and then talk a little bit about how it's, you know, if you look at like the academic descriptions, how it's often mm. captured. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, I don't see a difference, right? So uh, systems engineering itself and the general practices are just uh, tools built on decades of experience who have the the purpose of helping you perform integration, but it's not the mm-hmm. sum total of integration. Um, so a, a lot of times people will get caught up in the, the specific systems engineering tools, such as requirements or standards or um, you know, review processes like the milestone review processes that you might see in some of the systems engineering manuals and guidebooks. Um, but to me, those are really the, the starting place for, for integration. And then there's the, on top of the, those basic tools that most people are familiar with. Um, then there's the, the black magic art of integration itself. So to, so to sum up my answer to your question, I don't really <laughs> I don't really see a difference between the two.
1: I really appreciate the the description the black magic art of integration itself. That's uh, that that seems pretty pretty accurate. That's a good description of of what your department does. Could you tell us a little bit about HLS? We've talked about it on the show um we've talked about like the the three uh, main contractors right now, but how how do you see the state of HLS and and what do you uh, hope for it in the future?
3: Okay, so I'll start out with a brief overview of HLS itself. So you know the the nomenclature for, for true space nerds, as I'm sure most of the people on here are, <laughs> uh, can be a little bit <laughs> fuzzy because everybody uh, ties it back to to like the Apollo program, for instance. Um, and so with, you know, with Apollo, what most people, uh, think of when they're thinking of the Apollo program is both the, the crew capsule portion and the lander portion. And so this time around, where it's broken up a little bit different, where we have Orion as the crew capsule portion. Um, and then the, the lander this time is a separate program, which is the human landing system. And so the, the pure definition of it is just the system that will take uh, humans from lunar orbit, whether it's from Orion uh, direct or from the gateway orbiting platform uh, to the surface of the moon and back at the end of the mission. And so right now we're in the process of working with the, the three contractors that have been uh, selected as to start moving through the process of designing both the mission and the vehicles themselves. Uh, we can't talk too much about details because we're still in sure. a competition period, um, so for if you're looking for details on the specific systems, I would recommend following like the, the social media posts of each of the teams that um, ended up getting selected. But yeah, so we're we're working. We just started working uh, through them with them through the process of uh, getting going with both the mission design and the vehicle designs. And where we're hoping to end up is with uh, multiple different commercial providers that are capable of providing uh, lunar landing services that we can uh, over time as we move beyond these initial missions can become sort of a, a regular function where for a specific mission we can essentially rent the lander from a given commercial entity and use that to shuttle back and forth to the surface of the moon not too differently from the direction that we're headed to for commercial crew um, and one one of the other main differences between this program and Apollo is uh, the government at no point in time actually takes ownership of the the lander. The landers will still remain in, in the control of the commercial companies and will be working together to use them to transport crew back and forth to the surface.
2: That has to be as as a practical matter, like, are there other integrated performance teams for, you know, you're the deputy lead for uh, HLS, but is there one also for gateway and one for Orion? And do you have to work with them kind of like, like counterparts, I guess when you're integrating among these different systems?
3: Yeah. So each, um, the, the way it's <laughs> that it's a, it's a good question. So the way it's set up is each program has a, a different structure about how they've uh, chosen to, you know, create their organization to meet the demands, of their specific program. So like our procurement model is very different than Orion or Gateway so the different programs themselves have different structures but yes we have um we have we have many counterparts both in the both in the Gateway program uh relative to their vehicle design in Orion for the same ways but then there's uh we also work closely with the operations community uh cuz essentially mm. the way it works is the the products that our team is developing now and the general mission plans, as we get closer to the mission itself, transition more over to the operations community. Uh, so we heavily leverage their expertise uh, in these these early processes to help ensure that we actually have a, a viable mission and vehicle uh, at the end of the day. But then we also have uh, counterparts with each one of the contractors that we work yeah. with. So, yes, there's lots of integration that happens.
1: <laughs> so I, I guess a follow-on question to that is, how do you integrate systems that don't yet exist, right? We we're still in the proposal stage and I understand this is sort of a leading question here, but I, I guess another way to state it would be like, what exactly are you doing right now if you don't actually have hardware to work with?
3: Ah, so this is the fun part as a systems engineer. This is where I get to really geek out about what we, uh, what we try to do. So, uh, when you're when you're in the early phases of a program and you're trying to figure out how to take uh, multiple teams and multiple elements or modules, however you want to think about it, uh, and end up having them all become a, a single thing at the end of the day, that's really the purpose of the systems engineering where you, you start out uh, with a process that we call functional analysis, where you try to identify the specific functions that each piece of the system, uh, will have to perform in order for the, the system to successfully operate and to execute the mission. And so as part of that functional analysis process, the first thing you have to do is to, to sit down and figure out what your mission is. Uh, and so a lot of times people think in terms of, you know, developing the vehicle first and then working on developing the, the mission second. But in order for it to really be effective, you have to first start out with, with a mission concept and start working through that in a fair amount of detail uh, in order to end up uh, with a, a system that has all the functionals assi- functions assigned to the, the correct elements in a way that they all work together. Uh, so for this, it maybe was a bit easier because at least uh, some parts of the the system were designed when we started working on HLS. So for instance, Orion is essentially a pre-existing vehicle like it has all of its capabilities and hardware interfaces already defined so that creates firm constraints and boundaries on how uh hls needs to operate and it's not too dissimilar with gateway because they're also a fair amount ahead of us um and the same thing goes with the suit so that that provides some bounding cases um, for the space that hls needs to operate within and so from there it's been a, a process of Defining the specific functions that HLS needed to execute, as well as understanding the different mission uh, and timeline design constraints. And so when you're when you're in the early processes of designing designing a system, the the main things that you're focusing on and spending all your time thinking about are things that essentially characterize the design space. Uh, so both figuring out what what all the bounds of the design space are as well as the the sensitivities within the design space. So um, for instance, uh, if like if it takes me um this long to perform this specific function, uh, but as I as I go along in the design and development uh process, that particular the time needed to perform that particular function grows, how does it impact the rest of the system? And what are the, the design trade-offs and, you know, how mo- how many more consumables do I need to carry? Does it end up driving more Delta V out of the vehicle because it constrains the trajectory? Uh, so the goal early on and still in the phase that we're currently in, is making sure that we understand all those uh, sensitivities and interrelationships between all the different mission and vehicle design parameters.
1: So. One of those um, boundaries that Orion is imposing on you, I believe, is that it needs to stay in a high orbit um, so that it can get back home. Is that correct? That's kind of what we've heard.
3: Yeah. So Orion does have a, a fixed Delta V that we're designing to, but uh, we have spent a fair amount of time looking at alternate orbits and, you know, it's, it's interesting um it's easy to think sometimes that there there's a, a simple solution if you just change one or two things. Uh, but what we found so far is, you know, kind of like it was back in the back in the '60s. There's no uh, simple solution <laughs> for mm-hmm. for going to the moon. So uh, the the particular orbit that we've been uh, working with is our main candidate, the NRHO or Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. Although it is, uh, it is a higher orbit, it does come with uh, significant advantages, such as uh, there's essentially no, uh, like, solar eclipse time, like your vehicles never Mm. go in shadow, which is very helpful. Uh, And there, Mm. like, it's got some other different design benefits, so. Um, even though it is uh, it is a higher orbit and we are working to affix Delta V capability on Orion, I wouldn't characterize it as any sort of a showstopper.
1: And and actually it's it's an opportunity to shine because HLS is pro, I mean, I'm assuming is going to have uh, the highest Delta V capability of any, well, certainly of any human lander to this point, but I mean, like it, it, it gives HL, uh, HLS such a huge role to play. And it's, it's actually kind of exciting to go from such a crazy orbit down to the surface.
3: Right. And it's, you know, it's the difference between trying to, to plan out capabilities for uh, touch and go missions, which is what uh, I, I know that's not how we think of Apollo broadly <laughs> now, but compared to what we're uh, working on for these, these new missions, Apollo was essentially very much a touch and go mission. And so it's, When you're trying to design a longer surface stay capability so that you can do more EDAs and do more science and, you know, eventually move towards uh, being able to have things like an unpressurized rover on the surface and more extensive exploration than we were ever able to do in, uh, in Apollo, uh, you know, the, the orbits you want to stage from and the particular capabilities that you're developing are, you know, it's a very different set of capabilities that we're really targeting. So it will be. I do think it is exciting to be able to work on uh, trying to increase our delivery capability uh, and our surface stay times uh, significantly over what was able to be done on the the first missions out to the moon. Oh
2: yeah. So Catherine, I had a question, and you had mentioned commercial crew before. Mm-hmm. And um, while I recognize that this is uh, uh, HLS is different, where you know the commercial providers will own their own vehicle, and so, you know, it's not quite the same. But really, I've just been seeing in the news lately kind of Starliner, um, uh, and it had, you know, its problematic orbital flight test uh, back in December. And what was in the news was basically just a lot of recommendations that were required for, you know, uh, them to move forward. And so I was just wondering if, like, you know, will these reviews, have they affected uh, HLS's approach at all in terms of oversight? Because again, I recognize it's different, uh, your relationship with the commercial providers, but has there been any sort of, you know, has that changed anything or affected anything?
3: So no, the the recent events haven't uh, affected anything. Uh, From the very beginning, there's been a lot of emphasis in terms of how our uh, program was set up in terms of optimizing both the amount of uh, design freedom and room to innovate that the contractors had while still uh, ensuring that the the NASA engineering workforce had enough insight uh, into both the the system design and the engineering and manufacturing processes that are being used uh, in order to ensure, you know, a safe human rated vehicle that we can trust to carry our very precious crew uh, to the surface Mm -hmm. and back. So uh, it's something that, uh, you know, in our our day to day discussions and our day to day work approaches that we uh, The being able to have the appropriate level of insight is something that we take very seriously. But we also are, are, you know, doing everything we can to ensure that the contractors have enough uh, space that they can fully uh, implement their innovative design solutions and approaches.
1: Okay, cool. So I know, I know we've already talked about Apollo a bit, but could you compare your strategies today to the way that Apollo contracted at work?
3: Uh, I probably don't know the Apollo procurement approaches yeah. as well as I know the HLS procurement approaches, so it's hard to make yeah. a good comparison. With Apollo, it was they were essentially figuring out how to do a lot of the stuff. And so um, both in terms of like how you interact with contractors and how to... Uh, specify what you what you want to buy from the the contractors. Uh, and so I think the Apollo really served as the basis for how uh NASA has evolved their procurement approaches over the the following uh decades. Like it definitely informed um how we do business now. So I think but there I think there there are there are differences just because you know it's mm-hmm the the modern contracting world is a it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit different and probably the one of the biggest main differences is that like Logan put in the chat here uh, Apollo only had one contractor whereas we're we're trying to bring on board multiple contractors to ensure a broader industry base that can
1: all perform the same function and and so uh logan in the chat also says hopefully we don't make (laughs) co2 scrubbers with different shapes this time um (laughs) have you experienced or i guess are we beginning to see some of those um you know let's let's use the same shapes or the you know the same maybe even even COTS uh products um already happening to get hls to be as uh, as compatible as possible with Orion?
3: Well, so here's here's one of the interesting things about um, how we're approaching this currently. So we'll, we'll start in, internal to the, the lander itself. Um, one of the benefits of having uh, a single contractor in charge of the entire system, which some of the, as you've seen, some of the teams that are selected have multiple elements, but they're still all going to be a single entity in charge of all of those elements. Uh, so it does take out some of the integration complexity that you uh, might mm-hmm. see on some other NASA programs where NASA's uh, hired several different contractors uh, to make uh, specific parts of a larger, more complex system. And then NASA has to integrate all of those together uh, with the contractors having uh, responsibility for their entire system. You know, it's it's on them to ensure that they have that part interchangeability and you know, to make sure that you don't end up with the, the CO2 scrubber situation. Uh, between Orion and HLS, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to simplify that interface as much as possible so that there's not a whole lot of uh, equipment or any sort of mechanical interfacing part that has to go back and forth uh, across the interface. So the vehicles will be as independent as possible, mm-hmm. but Uh, Some of the things that do will have similarity across the interface is a lot of the the crew supplies and equipment. Um, So med kits and the personal personal supplies, crew clothing, equipment, like all that sort of stuff. That's still being provided by the government and should be very similar between the two vehicles.
0: That's interesting because I didn't know that you looked at that level of, you know, clothing and medical equipment things like that like Mm. that that's something that you have to take into account because i was thinking more about the vehicle itself and not necessarily things that go in it and then when you said like interfaces i was thinking of you know like electrical power stuff like that actually to what extent are those vehicles dependent on each other for that because um i don't think we know that right or at least i don't
3: so one of the the things that's been really fun and exciting for uh me on working this program is my background is actually more, uh, I started out as a propulsion test engineer uh, and then worked propulsion systems on SLS and then SLS uh, systems engineering and integration. So uh, this is really my first time through getting to work the crew side, which was always the goal and is really fun. So it's been super exciting, uh, but it is interesting about, you know, once you once you start really having to delve into the, the crew support side, it ends up that ends up being one of the, the main challenges in terms of the whole vehicle emission design, because the you know, you've got to support humans in a very hostile environment for somewhere on the time frame of a month or so, uh, which while at the same time trying to minimize the mass and space that everything takes up. So it's, it turns into a really interesting design problem to where the, the stuff that you're trading isn't just like, you know, the Delta V and tank size and engine ISP and all the things you would typically think about in terms of spacecraft design. But it's just as important to uh, pay the same sort of attention to the the crew functions, both like the the way the crew has to be able to operate inside of the vehicle, but also all the stuff it takes to uh support the crew for that time frame. And so you do end up because it is it does end up being uh, such a payload mass driver, from the very beginning, you do end up going into a ton of detail in terms of trying to figure out exactly what the the crew is going to need. Um, because the the vehicle has to be designed to uh take all of that uh from you know whatever the the staging vehicle is all the way down to the surface and then back up and that's you know, a big chunk of the, the payload mass outside of the actual suit mass and then the crew mass itself is all the stuff it takes to support them. Uh, and then you have to have a place to, to house all of that. And it's got to be easily accessible uh, during different phases of the mission. And so all of that ends up being significant vehicle design drivers. Uh, and then you can end up in a situation where, you know, some of that may have to be transferred back and forth between the, between the two vehicles, but we're trying to keep that to a minimum so that they're independent, independent systems. And then one way you can think about uh, the term interface in general is if you, you take the, you take Orion and you take HLS and you draw a line between the two of them and the way you can look at trying to develop an interface is uh essentially what you're doing is defining anything that has to be transferred back and forth between the the two vehicles uh, under any context and so that can be equipment that gets moved back and forth it's the uh, communication between the two vehicles it's the the physical actual touching, uh, interface. It's the airflow when the hatches are open between the two vehicles. So it's essentially any way the vehicles interact with each other at all.
0: Okay. That's actually mm. a very good summation of what that means. And yeah, that kind of clarifies it for me.
1: Um, just, just out of curiosity. So we're still, um, the Artemis suit is still XEMU, right? Yes. How, I mean, I, I know that they did like the big, uh, the big reveal um, with two folks walking around in suits um, on stage how well defined is XEMU at this point? Can you do you have everything that you need to design around the suit?
3: So I would say for the the maturity of the program where we're we're currently at, um, they're also one of our partners that's a little bit more advanced than the the lander design is. So it's been mm-hmm. uh, more than well enough defined to, to to give us a good start on figuring out mm. how the vehicle and the suit need to interact with each other and the ways that uh, we need to you know, designed the mission plan and the mission timelines um, to, you know, support use of that suit for the surface EVAs.
1: Oh, okay, cool. So, okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so excited to see people bouncing around on the moon. <laughs> we're, so, mm-hmm. we're so close.
3: So,
0: going back to Starliner, I guess just uh, in your professional opinion, uh, what aspects of testing could have been done better as far as integration go? Because obviously they had some issues with that second orbital flight test or the first one or, or, yeah, was it the, it was the second test, right? But the first orbital flight test. I think I got that right. I guess I would just like to get your view on that to the extent that you can comment on it.
3: So, I can't comment on the, the Starliner case uh, specifically, but I will give you my general philosophy on those sorts of things, which is that a lot of times the starting perspective of some people is that the the focus is on developing specific widgets or piece parts or like really optimizing a single element of an overall system. But in my experience, the, the hardest part is usually not in, say, developing an engine. The, the hard part is always in trying to get the entire vehicle to work well together. Uh, and so it's always important to make sure that you put the appropriate focus on the, the integration And ensuring that the, this, not just the piece parts work well, but that the system works well together. Because it doesn't matter how awesome your widget is if it doesn't actually work with the rest of the vehicle.
1: I believe that no imperial widgets in a metric spacecraft,
3: which is way harder to pull off than you would think to to make those sorts oh, of really? distinctions. Yeah. Oh, really? sure. I'm I'm a fan of a, like the entire country moving to a metric <laughs> measurement system any day now. I think it would make all of our lives way yeah. easier. So, how does
1: HLS affect, or I guess how is HLS affected by clips? Um, I know that there was um, it was a, the Artemis Accords talking about, you know. Um, keep out spheres and that kind of thing but do you guys have to worry about what clips is doing at all
3: so uh I don't think I don't think worry is the right word right so the I think it will be helpful to have these initial early missions where they're they're getting to uh, actually you know test I think the big one is being able to test out different uh, landing instrumentation uh so there's mm. you know one of the big things you always worry about in terms of uh, spacecraft and space system development is the relative technology readiness level of different critical equipment suites on the vehicle. So whether that's like, say you've got some fancy 3D printed valve, but we've never flown that 3D printing method before, then you have to like work through a qualification process to make sure that it's, you know, and actually like a a reliable manufacturing method and that your processes are having good consistency and that you get enough time on the, the hardware to make sure that it functions as expected and doesn't have unexpected failure modes, like all those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's been a lot of cool landing technology that's been developed and is in, you know, essentially a prototype state since the last time we went to the moon, but none of that's been tested in the lunar environment, right? And so even if it's not, say, it's not exactly the same system that gets used on the eclipse landers and HLS, having even the, the the clips versions of those different pieces of hardware like i said mainly thinking about the the different landing sensors and instrumentation suites getting to have trial runs on those will be uh very informative for what ends up going on the human landing system at the end of the day as well as you know the it's been a while since we've landed very much on the moon, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah. what they get to to experience in terms of environments and like plume surface interaction uh, is a big one you know all of that that data will be helpful for how we approach uh, human the human landing system. So I think it's like Logan said in the chat it's it's much more of a mutual benefit than a worry type situation
1: So in that respect, you're almost, you are bridging two different contractors because none of the HLS contractors are working on Clips. So you're having Clips contractors do work that then comes up through you and is donated down to the HLS contractors.
3: To some extent, yes. But there's, you know, on a lot of these items, there's a very small supply base. And so even though, like, the, the prime contractors in each state, like, Situation might be different. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not pulling from the same, say, sensor provider.
1: Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so I asked you about uh, about the suit, um, and then you you mentioned the the rover. I, I guess same question. What what are we looking at for what what boundaries have already been set up for the rover that you're having to deal with?
3: So I actually um, haven't uh, worked on the the rover side of it very much, and there are okay. at least partially because there's no. Direct interface between the rover and the lander, so it'll be oh, a, a right. separate surface asset. So I haven't, right. I haven't been working on that particular interface.
1: Okay, okay,
3: yeah, that that makes sense.
1: Okay, so so one of the questions that we get a lot from, specifically young listeners, are questions like, uh, I I want to work in the space industry. How do I get there? Or I, I plan to work on the space industry, but I don't know what I'm interested in. What, what should I go study? And so I'd love to hear, um, a little bit more about your history, how you got to where you are. Um, and I think the jump from propulsion to, to integration is, um, logical, but interesting. Um, and then once you've told us a little bit more about yourself, if you could give, Uh, advice to young students?
3: Sure. So I I think I probably have a a pretty unique backstory compared to most engineers. So NASA in engineering is actually my second career right out of high school um, due to some life, interesting life circumstances. Literally a a week after high school graduation, I enlisted in the, the U.S. Air Force. As an Arabic cryptologic linguist, and so from wow. age yeah, from age eighteen to twenty-two, um, I was actually enlisted in the Air Force and uh, working out at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. Um, but then at twenty-two, I ended up getting uh, medically retired. And so uh, I had actually grown up with the, with the space program. I uh I grew up uh in the Huntsville area and uh my mom was actually a safety engineering contractor out in the test area and my stepdad was a crane operator. So I got to uh as a kid I got to actually grow up around some of the the different test stands as well as the the hardware uh cuz back before September 11th, you know, just like most parents, if my parents had to work late, sometimes Mm -hmm. they brought me into work with them. So, uh, for instance, the, you know, the, one of the space station nodes was built here at Marshall. And so as a kid, I actually got to get inside of it before it launched. So I was, I was sold on, uh, on the space thing from a, a pretty early age, but then, um, my life took some pretty interesting, uh, interesting turns. Like in high school, I actually ended up living, not with my family, but at a, a children's home and had to sort of find a non-traditional path forward through life. Uh, and so the, uh, I chose to join the military because of the, you know, the college benefits and they do actually give you a place to live, which is kind of awesome <laughs> if you're coming out of not great circumstances. Uh, and so that was that was sort of a near-term solution, but when I was starting to go through the the med board and the medical retirement process, uh, and had to figure out what I wanted to do next, uh, I, I came back to my initial love of space and thought I would try again. And so I actually put in for um, a NASA internship. And at this point, like I had my Arabic degree, and outside of that, I think I had like one chemistry and one calculus class. Um, but I put in for a NASA internship and uh, actually got accepted. At that point, I decided to go ahead and move home and uh, go to school here in town at the University of Alabama at Huntsville uh, and get uh, an engineering degree. But like probably like, it sounds like some of your listeners are in the same boat where it was like, OK, I love space and I want to do human space. Uh, what degree do I need for that? And so pretty, pretty quickly it became apparent that for the kind of stuff I really wanted to do, you needed an engineering degree. But at that point it was kind of a pick one situation. So I thought about it and you know, the part that makes the fire seemed pretty cool. (laughs) So it's, you know, if I have to pick one, getting the, getting to play with fire seems pretty awesome. So, um, I, that's how I ended up going down the, down the propulsion route. But the the goal in general was just to try to find a way to um, get to do human spaceflight. So a little bit non-traditional path, but it seems to have worked out okay. And then the the way I ended up going from, uh, well, like I said at the beginning, I started out as in the propulsion test area here at Marshall. Um, and I, like, I really loved the job. It was it, it was cool because when you're the, the test engineer, you, you know, you're responsible for getting the facility set up like you have to write all the test procedures, you run the test and you interface with the customers. And it was a it was a pretty cool job. But after a while, you know, I, at least personally, I got to where it was like, you know, I think I want to actually go help develop the things being tested, not just mm-hmm. test other people's stuff and then hand it back over to them at the at the end. Like I want to actually be mm. more involved on the flight side. Uh, and so that was when I started moving into the propulsion department uh, and pretty quickly uh, ended up in an integration role there because that's just apparently what I like to do. And after a while working on propulsion, it was like, you know, I really think I want to go be involved in like the vehicle and the mission side of things. And it's just mm. kind of kept growing from there. But I think my my current position is the one where I'm definitely the, definitely the happiest. Uh, I really like being in that capacity where you get to both work the big picture, but then you also get to work uh, down and in and work on the, the detail side too. So uh, I think I've, I've mm-hmm. found, you know, the Goldilocks <laughs> spot.
1: Um, so I, I guess your, your advice to kids who aren't sure what to study is go where the fire is.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. So my, uh, <laughs> So my, my advice is a little different than that. The, I think the, the big thing is when you're trying to put pati- like pick a particular thing to study in school, you don't have to necessarily look at it as it being your forever choice, right? So you, essentially your, your undergraduate education is just building a foundation for all the different paths that you can take in the, in the future. And so my recommendation, if you're not sure, like, you know, specifically what you want to spend your life working on. Um so like say you haven't decided that you want to work on like the the material properties of carbon fiber composites or something like that, uh, is to is to pick something general. Um so something like either uh you know mechanical or electrical engineering, uh either one can branch into a whole bunch of different disciplines within the, the spaceflight industry so if you do like uh, electrical like you can go work in avionics you can focus on sensors you could even eventually go into the the programming side like you can branch out pretty far and it's the same thing with mechanical uh I actually meant to get a mechanical degree with an emphasis in aerospace and uah changed the degree program at the last second and ended up graduating with a straight aerospace degree but uh <clears throat> but mechanical ties into just about everything. So it covers thermal. Um, it covers like you even get into some uh, control system type work, it covers the the structural side of things, it covers fluid mechanics. so it can be used in a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different ways. So if you're not hundred percent sure exactly where you want to end up in the uh, in the spaceflight uh, industry, but you want to be on the engineering side, then you know picking like a broad area of engineering as your undergraduate degree will help make sure that there's multiple paths open to you as you go forward.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We have two traditional final questions. Our penultimate question is where would you like to be found on the internet?
3: So the, the place to start would be on my Twitter, which is at K-A-T underscore C-R. Uh, And then there will be some other links in the show notes if you're looking for even more information. And
0: our ultimate question is, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be?
1: That's a really good question. Normally, we specify... Um, a commercial space station in Leo or maybe ISS. But I I think you get to go to the moon's surface if you want.
3: Oh, then I definitely want like 360 degree imaging equipment so that I can Uh. like, you know, the kind that records like the VR type imagery so that way everyone back on Earth could have the same experience of being on the moon.
1: Do you uh, plop that down on a tripod on the surface or do you wear it on your head?
3: I wear it on my head because I'm definitely going to walk over to the edge of one of the big craters and try to look it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Thanks again. Uh, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today, Catherine.
3: Well, thank you guys too. I'm, I'm very honored to be here and this is really fun.
0: For uh, this week in Space History, we just got one winner, but I know we had a couple guesses, so I guess this was a good, hard clue. Um, perfectly calibrated to get only one correct response. And the clue was pumpkin in a paper bag, and that was in 1999, uh, and we just got Cheva Tercozzi, who is our sole winner.
1: Yeah, so um, Ben Hallert actually just snuck in under the wire and guessed correctly correctly. Um, oh, but he doesn't okay. get full credit because he totally missed the paper bag reference. So mm. let's let's get into it. This is um, just a fantastic uh, topic. I-, I love this one. So, mm-hmm. the twenty third of July, nineteen ninety nine. This week in spaceflight history was the launch of STS ninety three. Okay. So let's talk about the clue first. STS-93 had a number of scrubs, which, you know, isn't unusual for a shuttle. Um, the initial launch date was July 20th. Um, they had to scrub for detected hydrogen in the aft compartment. Um, and they actually had to delay for longer than usual because they needed to reservice the RFIs, the radial outward firing initiators, the sparklers that burn off propellants in the area of the uh, of the engines so they went from the 20th to the 22nd boy the the 22nd was almost a disaster so thunderstorms were originally forecast at 3.2 percent but unfortunately they showed up a hundred percent and the problem here is that a, a longer launch window if they could just add 10 minutes they probably would have met launch criteria um, the launch window was pretty strictly constrained um, because STS-93's main mission was to launch the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And Chandra was mounted on top of an inertial upper stage. And um, because of the complexity of that system and the requirements for deploying its solar arrays and actually hitting its intended orbit, it has very uh, strict uh, constraints on when it can actually be deployed. And so those deployment restraints also constrain when you can launch the vehicle. So initially, you, you know, of course, they had multiple backup uh, deployments, but as far as I understand, they only had three, uh, three total. So one primary and two backups. They really wanted to be able to deploy Chandra on day one. So they need to be able to stretch their launch window out by 10 minutes to let this storm die down. And so they made the decision to give up their final deploy window. So they go from a primary and two backups to a primary and a single backup. Um, and by doing that, they bought themselves 10 minutes. The 10 minutes go by and the storms get worse and they go, well, if we give up our second uh, backup deployment window, we can buy another seven minutes for our launch. Okay. Okay. All right, let's do that. And they start um, looking at the numbers and they they decide that they uh, are going to push to extend the window out. Now, Wayne Hale has a fantastic blog and there will be a link um, to a pre-built search term that'll bring up all of the articles about STS 93. Um, And in one of them, he talks about this particular launch opportunity. And he realized there was a problem when the ascent flight director asked Fido when the launch window was closing because uh, the flight director didn't know. And Fido replies, I'm not sure because MOD, the mission operations directorate, the MOD backroom is having a bunch of conversations and they're looking at extending it. And so I don't know when our launch window closes. And Wayne says, this was an immediate red flag. As soon as FIDO doesn't know when we're launching, you need to scrub. There's a problem. And so um, after they, – they ended up uh, scrubbing that launch attempt. And luckily, it, it didn't end up mattering because the storm continued to get worse um, so it didn't matter what what bad decisions they made. But when they debrief afterwards, they realized that they caught launch fever. They were frustrated at having a delay two days ago, and they didn't want to have another one. And they started to make what could have been very bad choices. So they ended up pushing back to July 23rd when the mission actually launched. Um, and it wasn't a super smooth uh, launch attempt either. At T-20, they have a hold, like a built-in hold, Um and they actually had to extend it by a number of minutes because they had a ground tracking issue. One of the one of the downrange stations needed to fix a problem. But anyway, they, they ended up launching successfully. Um, I, I said that uh, mission control got launch fever. Well, you know, the astronauts did too. Um, this was the third time that they had gotten into the shuttle in four days. Um, and Steve Hawley, one of the astronauts, so the uh, mission specialist, is... a a real joker and a a fun person. And he decided that it might be him that was causing the delays. So he decided that he was going to wear disguises on attempts two and three so that the shuttle wouldn't recognize him. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) And uh, apparently it worked because they were able to launch on attempt three. Um, But he covered his name tag and he wore a Groucho Marx, uh, you know, glasses, eyebrows and nose uh, disguise. And then uh, actually both of these might have been on the third attempt and not on two different attempts. I'm not 100 percent sure. And I don't know how I would confirm that. But in any event, the clue for this week was pumpkin in a paper bag. So there is a wonderful photo of him in his ACEs suit, the, the orange flight suit, also called the pumpkin suit. And instead of wearing a Groucho mask, he's actually wearing a whole paper bag on his head with two little holes cut out for his eyes. So that's where pumpkin and a, <laughs> and a paper bag comes from. Excellent job, Chubby, for getting not only the event, but the, um, the actual clue um, nailed down. Just fantastic. And of course, there will be photos in the show notes of both of these disguises, Um, and it's it's fantastic. So they launched on July 23rd, and they actually had an in-flight abort, and it was the only in-flight abort ever experienced by shuttle. Um, We've talked about the different abort modes a number of times, but the two that we're going to be talking about today are abort to orbit and RTLS return to launch site. In this case, they almost, they they ended up aborting to orbit, as we know, because Chandra is in orbit, although I guess they could have re-flown it afterwards. But anyway, it it aborted to orbit, but it almost actually had to do an RTLS abort, which is terrifying. (laughs) Really, really scary. So a contributing factor to being able to get to orbit is the uh, SLWT, the super lightweight external tank. This was only the fourth time that SLWT had been flown. And on top of that, Chandra formed the heaviest payload that had ever been flown on shuttle at that point. And so, uh, aborting to orbit is is very critical on the amount of Delta V that you have left, which is very dependent on the amount of cargo you have or the the mass of your spacecraft. So, they have a successful ignition and a successful liftoff. And at T plus 5... There was an electrical short. And the short later was discovered to have been caused by poorly routed wiring. Um, So there were, um, you know, wires running all over the spacecraft. This particular wire was, uh, or wire pair, I believe, was insulated with Kapton tape. And it was placed improperly, it was pretty close to where it should have been, but it ended up um, sitting too close to the head of a screw in the cargo bay. That normally wouldn't have been that big of a problem, but this particular screw had a burr on it, probably from a technician over-tightening it. And so the wire could rub up against that burr, ended up rubbing off its Kapton uh, insulation and shorting out. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but a a lot of electricity flowed through the short. That short did two big things. It killed the uh, DCU-A on the center engine, and it killed DCU-B on the right engine. The DCUs are the computers that control the engines, and each of the three space shuttle main engines have two DCUs, A and B. A is considered the primary, B is considered the backup. We're going to talk more about them in a second, but suffice it to say, they act as complementary computers, but they do not have access to all the same instrumentation. Most of the data goes to DCUA, and only error codes and chamber pressure are shared by both. So if you lose one of them, you lose data on your engines. Um, Not only do do the ground controllers lose data, but the vehicle itself loses data. And the DCUs are not able to make as well-informed choices when they're acting on their own. We're going to come back to that. First, the real issue. All right. If you thought that losing DCUs was an issue, just wait. Inside the space shuttle main engine, there's a combustion chamber. And at the top of that is the injector plate where the fuel and oxidizer are sprayed and mixed, right? So... Those injector plates are full of, uh, I don't know the number, but it's hundreds of pins uh, that uh, spray fuel out of them. Um, because the SSMEs were used over and over and over, occasionally they would have a pin that would show up on, it's either x-ray or ultrasound. I don't remember how they actually checked the status of, of the injector pins. Um, when they would see one of these posts had been fatigued, they would plug it up by putting what they call a deactivation pin up inside there and, you know, jam it in. I don't know if it was also welded or not, but they're uh, gold pins that they just shove all the way up the throat of this post. And that's what um, that's what was ejected, was this little plug of gold that was keeping that, that injector post from spraying liquid oxygen. And I, I need to stress, over 200 pins were plugged. Over the fleet. So it's not like this is that big of a deal. We thought. <laughs> well, this time it was. One of the oxidizer pins that had been plugged came loose and shot out of the injector plate. And uh, it comes shooting out at the speed of a bullet, and it actually looks like a bullet. It looks like a little gold bullet. Uh, It's about the same size and shape and, uh, having a bullet inside your rocket engine is a bad thing. It actually contacted the nozzle extension, um, which you two are familiar with this. I hope most of our listeners are as well. The, the SSME nozzle extensions are, are super delicate. They are metal tubes brazed together, right? Not, not welded. They're brazed together. I mean, you can't weld something that thin. So it's this collection of tubes that are are braced together and they flow nitrogen, not nitrogen, they flow hydrogen through them to cool the extension and, and keep it from burning through. Well, s- this gold bullet slammed into the nozzle extension and actually broke open three of those tubes, which caused hydrogen to start leaking out of the the inside of the nozzle extension in the show notes is a great little image that actually shows that little hot spot. You can see a streak where there's no cold liquid gas flowing through that part of the engine bell and and keeping it cool so it actually glows red so as bad as this is, it could have been worse. The pin failed, but the post didn't. If the post would have failed, it actually would have been a, a crit one failure, um, which is a failure that leads to the loss of crew and vehicle. And it, it makes sense why that would have happened because O2 would have been spilling out into the, into the chamber and basically the engine would have exploded, right? Would have been a bunch of knock on effects from this, but, um, essentially the engine goes boom. And if that sounds like a bad failure mode, it could have been even worse (laughs) because three tubes were ruptured, as I said. Later calculations showed that five tubes rupturing would have been enough to cause uh, a big enough local loss of cooling to allow the nozzle to have burned through, which would have killed the thrust or it would have um, had a strong impact on the thrust from that engine. It also would have caused the uh, adjacent engines to fail and it would have been another crit one failure oh, okay so what happens we're leaking hydrogen out of the engine bell at this point uh th- this was on the the center on the right engine the right engine is the one that lost dcu b so uh dcu b on the right was dead and so the luckily dcu a had enough information to be able to account for this the way it accounted for it and this might sound a little crazy uh, but this is the way that the system was designed. Um, when it saw that it was burning too much hydrogen, it decided to dump in some extra oxygen to keep the mixture ratio correct. Well, the SSMEs run fuel rich because they want to use some of that fuel to cool the engine. So now uh, they're dumping extra O2 into the combustion chamber without having extra hydrogen being dumped into the chamber because the extra hydrogen is actually getting dumped out of the nozzle downstream, right? So What this leads to is the fuel mixture being much closer to stoichiometric and the temperature of the combustion chamber rising. It rose by 100 degrees. There is a difference of 200 degrees between nominal pressure or nominal temperatures and the red line. Let's shut everything down temperatures. 200 degrees is the margin. Yeah, we yeah. ate up half of it.
0: Yeah, and that's not much on an engine that runs what? How hot? Like that's like a small, I mean, you know, 200 degrees is, is a lot to a human being, but to an engine, it's not much at all.
1: 300 degrees would be 10. So it's, I mean, it's it's like 5%. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, 5%. Yeah. The, the
1: uh, combustion chamber temperature, um, the nominal temperature is 3,300 degrees. Um, mm-hmm. So really, really not a lot. All right. So- uh, we're dumping oxygen into the engine, which means that by the time they were getting close to the end of ascent, they were running low on oxygen. This is actually a good thing, uh, believe, believe it or not. If you were to run out of hydrogen uh, before you ran out of oxygen, basically the engine explodes as the fuel runs out. And it just, it has to do with stoichiometry and what happens when you have little bursts of hydrogen versus little bursts of oxygen, right? If you want one to go fuzzy, you you don't want it to be the nitrogen or the the hydrogen. So it's actually really good that we uh, started dumping out a lot of of oxygen. Not only were we burning additional oxygen to keep up with the with the hydrogen loss. But it actually turns out that this shuttle happened to have a lot less uh oxygen than it should have. And this is just uh this is accepted, depending on the temperature and pressures and all these different variables. You're never a hundred percent sure how much propellant um, you've put into the vehicle. And so in this case, after the fact, they went and did the math and it turns out that they had shorted the oxygen load by 897 pounds. That's acceptable. They have a reserve of 3,000 pounds. Unfortunately, by overconsuming oxygen on the way up, they actually wound up being 1700 kilograms short of their target. Sorry to mix units. When they ran out of oxygen, they still had five meters per second that they needed to achieve to get to their, to their final orbit. It could have been worse. <laughs> it's kind of the, the, the running theme here. Could have been worse. When they went back and post flight, they found out that they actually should have run out of oxygen a lot sooner. Um, they actually should have been short 60 meters per second instead of five meters per second. So why the heck did they have better performance than they actually did? Well, so we talked about losing DCUB on the right engine. They also lost DCUA on the center engine. When you lose DCUA, you lose most of the data on your engine. And so DCUB was having to make decisions without very much data. And we actually had uh, an issue in our favor in the center engine. Uh, it had a pressure transducer looking at the pressure inside of the combustion chamber. Uh, there was something wrong with the transducer or the wiring connecting it to the to the uh DCUs. And it actually turns out that it read 12 psi higher than the actual pressure. But it only read high when they were at full throttle. When they were at less than full throttle, it looked just fine. So when they hit full throttle, dcub on the center engine goes ah crap we're we've got too high of a chamber pressure i better throttle down and the center engine throttled down and stopped consuming oxygen as quickly which allowed them to uh to actually have enough oxygen to nearly reach orbit oh boy so (laughs) they did indeed reach orbit (laughs) um they got up to the orbit that they needed to to release chandra they, they almost had to use an RTLS abort. RTLS is designed for loss of thrust from one SSME, and RTLS is valid up to four minutes and 20 seconds after launch. After that point, you don't have enough propellant to go home. And uh, it, they didn't figure out what was going on until after RTLS was no longer an option. Yikes, guys. Um, mm. What what an absolutely insane launch. Um, STS-93 is one of my favorites. It is one of the best ways to learn about how Shuttle actually works because there were so many different things that went wrong that overlapped that every account that talks about it thoroughly has to talk about a bunch of different systems and gives you a really good idea of the interactions between those systems. I, I think it's absolutely delightful. In the show notes will be a bunch of links, but primarily go read Wayne Hale's website or uh, Wayne Hale's blog. It is insightful, it is entertaining, and just well worth your time. I could sit and read his blog with little regard to anything else happening in the world. Oh, thanks. Uh, Dave M in the chat uh mentioned something that I, I didn't talk about. This was the first shuttle mission with a female commander, Eileen Collins, um, who we've talked about on the show a number of times. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really fun because um I think it was Wayne Hale uh talked about having a, a good crew to watch over her first flight. Yeah, Dave says, uh, talk about trial by fire. You're not kidding. This it's not oh, no. good to get uh to get up into space and then see the, uh, low fuel light come on. That's, that's not what
0: you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good this week in spaceflight history. Let's see if you can beat it with next week's, uh, what's the clue for that one?
1: This is, this is a tough one. Next week in 1980, the clue is get to work on Soyuz. Uh, get to work is in quotes. Get to work is a direct quote from somebody. That's, that's going to be mm. my, my attempt to ease this clue. Get to work on Soyuz.
0: Get to work on Soyuz. Okay. So, yep, I'm not sure what that is in reference to, but if someone out there thinks that they know, of course, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
1: Yeah, good luck, everybody.
0: All right. So in upcoming spaceflight events, we got three launches, one spacewalk. Uh, first launch is on July 23rd, and that's the launch of a Long March 5, and that's launching Tian one um, And we don't have a time for that. So we do, we do know it's launching from Wenchang, China. And uh, actually, this is a mission that is going to be China's first attempt to land something on Mars. So that's very ambitious. And uh, yeah, so this is like their big robotic mission to the Martian surface, but no exact launch time. But it is on the 23rd.
2: Kind of the theme is all the Mars missions are at the end of this
1: month, hopefully.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right, not a Mars mission. Uh, on July 23rd, a Progress 76P is going to be launching or i guess progress 76p is going to be launching so you know it's, a, it's a progress mission to iss it will be launching uh july 23rd at 1426 utc and then it will be arriving at the station on this on the same day it's doing uh, it's it's fast rendezvous so coverage of the rendezvous will begin at 1 p.m eastern time and the actual docking is scheduled at 1.47 p.m. Eastern Time.
2: And then finally on July 28th, we've got Ariane 5. We'll be taking a pretty uh, cool trio of uh, spacecraft to orbit. Uh, we have a Galaxy 30, which is a communication satellite. We've got BSAT-4B, which is a uh, Japanese um, broadband services satellite. And then we have the MEV-2, the Mission Extension Vehicle 2. So this one is going to go and try to find a uh, Intel SAT-1002 communication satellite and uh, try to extend its commercial life again. So we might get some awesome images uh, like we did before uh, with MEV1. So keep an eye out for that. And this one, again, is uh, July 28th with a window from 2129 to 2215 UTC launching out of Karoo.
0: Alrighty, those are your upcoming Spaceflight events. And with that, let's do it with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies
2: you can join our discord for free during social distancing check out our twitter or reddit for links where are orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the all right
0: that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you